You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo on this dreary, wet Sunday morning in Melbourne. I'm Dr. Shane. It is a pleasure to be with you again. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. see you. And Dr. Catherine? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Glad to have you guys in here. We are coming off the back of a massive Radiothon period where so many people phoned up and subscribed to the show. A big thank you to you. I'm going to talk more to you about that later because I think it's a a huge thing. And you can still uh, subscribe to the station, actually, if you want to get on the web. It's not too late to go into uh, the prize draws and so forth and um, and get all our love. But um, we're going to sort of mix the show up a bit today. We have to reverse the, the program in a sense because we have our first guest on the phone from the US and I've agreed to uh, do that first. We have Dr. Laura Jameen, who is a research fellow from the Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts General Hospital. Laura, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? We can. Look, it's great to talk to you. Now, I came across your research during the week, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, about look at, you, you've been looking at how people's brains differ at different ages and how, how we peak for different things at different times. Give us a bit of a rundown on, on what you found and, and how you went about it. Yes, yeah, so there's this, um, a model of the way the brain changes that's been dominant for a really long time. And basically it goes something like this. You've got these fluid cognitive abilities that peak really early in life, say late teens, early 20s. And that's about working with new information flexibly and, and efficiently. Mm-hmm. And then you have crystallized cognitive abilities that peak much later in life, say middle life. Um, and that's more about the acquisition of skills and knowledge. So things like your vocabulary and you know how much you facts you know about the world. Okay. And we decided to look in very large samples and re-examine that notion, but in a more fine-grained way, looking at lots of people and across many different cognitive abilities. And we were able to show that there are, in fact, things like how quickly you can process new information that peak really early, and things like vocabulary that peak later. But then a bunch of stuff in between that really doesn't behave, I guess, in either of these models. So stuff that peaks in your in your early 30s, things that aren't peaking until you're in your early 40s, other things that don't peak until your late 40s, and then domains that are not peaking into the 60s and you know up until age 70. Now, so now, a much now, more nuanced view than we've had before. Laura, uh, two of us in the studio here, and not necessarily the third. Uh, Catherine's a bit younger, but Dr. Ray and I would very much like to know what things are peaking in your early to mid to late 40s. Early 40s. Early 40s. So so back in, I think, the 1970s, we had this, uh, when people were tested in their their mid-40s, it was basically things like vocabulary that were peaking. And then after the mid-40s, they started to go down, and nothing else was peaking beyond that. Um, People that we tested today... Vocabulary doesn't peak until the mid-60s and late 60s. Mm-hmm. And in the mid-40s, we were seeing that people were best at things like uh, reading the intentions of another person from their face. So kind of a social intelligence, social cognition type ability, which was very surprising to us because it didn't fit with the models. But then in some ways, it's kind of common sense, right? We, we know that we are more socially mature now than we probably were in our late teens. Um, and actually, we just published a paper three weeks ago in Psychological Science, again, um, with some other colleagues, where we show that your ability to really concentrate and sustain your attention also seems to peak in the 40s. Hmm. So this is something that is typically thought of 
as similar to fluid cognitive ability, but it's showing a very different pattern again. And, you know, people in their mid-40s seem to be the best at paying really close attention. Damn straight we are. We certainly are. Now, give us an idea about how you go about testing that, because I can imagine, you know, there's a lot of noise in some of these sort of measurements. How do you make sure that the the test that you're doing has enough sort of questions or or exposure for each particular individual you look at to make sure you can pull out that data? So I think you're the first person who's actually asked me that from the media. So um, we spend a long time developing these tests and making them as reliable as possible. And by reliable, I mean uh, something that's able to capture a signal in a person's cognitive ability in a way that is replicable. And if you did test again, they would get a similar score. So we're actually very, very careful to select tests that are really good at doing that sort of thing. Um, And also, I think when you test very large numbers of people, you're able to come to these more precise inferences about what's happening if people are different at different ages. And the advantage of the way we were doing it is we were able to get these very, very large samples in um, at a scale that was pretty unprecedented, I think, in previous studies because of the power of the Internet. Hmm. So, so what sort of scale are we talking about in terms of actual people? So we tested, for this study, we tested 20,000 new participants. Wow. Overall, we analyzed data from 50,000 people. That was from studies that happened in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And then of of that 50,000, 20,000 were brand new participants tested in the last two or three years. Hmm. So a pretty large new sample. And across the age range, so lots and lots of adults, which are typically the hardest group to get because adults are often busy doing things like raising families and working and, you know, all that other kind of good stuff that fills our day. Fortunately for you, they're they're busy playing with their phones as well, Mm. I suppose. (laughs) Fortunately. In addition to their families and their day jobs, they're also on the internet killing time occasionally, <laughs> um, you know, during lunch breaks, of course. Uh, so that's the, this kind of research really is able to get at those sorts of people that don't tend to come into the lab and volunteer for experiments. Mm. Now, when you, when you drill down to this sort of finer level of detail, does that mean that these sorts of tests and the data that you have could be used as a bit of an early warning system for things like Alzheimer's and other degeneration diseases of the brain? It's an interesting idea, and we don't know yet, but we hope so. So I think that being able to understand what's happening in that middle adulthood period in a much more precise way is is going to be very critically important if we're going to be finding these early signs of, of neurodegenerative type diseases. Um, and the fact that our, most of our understanding of aging is based on people who are older and already in sort of a much more uh, a, a, a period of life when dementia is potentially already developing is unfortunate. And so we're hoping that with these citizen science type models where you get lots and lots of people, we can really start defining that early, early risk period that's long before symptoms start to pop up. Laura, it's Dr. Catherine here. Will you then be able to follow this sample that you have over subsequent years or even decades for them to repeat the tests and and see what sort of changes occur? So we're hoping ultimately to move to that kind of model. So um, we've been collecting email addresses from people who are interested in doing this kind of study, and we're hoping to do a a longitudinal study of ageing and cognition. At the moment, the data that we have is all cross-sectional, so it's all people um, who are different ages right now doing the test you know, coming to the website randomly in their lunch break, doing some tests, and then maybe coming back later, but we don't really track them. Um, So that gives us a nice uh, way of discovering things that we might not have thought to look for. But then the longitudinal work, as you say, is really critical to start tracing people over time and seeing how people are actually changing um, in a, in a you know, falling kind of way. Mm. Laura, I did a, um, a test on your website the other day because you're, you're the, um, the founder and director of something called Test My Brain. And now whenever I see a person smiling at me, I see a, a dot 
to my left. <laughs> now, g- give us an idea. What's this test for, and what you know? What's the significance of looking at happy and sad faces, and then doing these tests? So you're talking about the test where you are following the dots, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that one's a test of multiple object tracking. So how well you're able to follow multiple visual objects on a screen, they get faster and faster. We add more and more. And we really, um, it should be hard for everyone is the idea, even Mm -hmm. if they're extremely good. Um, And that's getting at how how good your visual spatial attention is. And that's something that we find does change across the lifespan. But there's a lot of um, individual differences. So some people are very, very good at it. And some people are very, very bad at it. It doesn't mean that they're not smarter, they're less smart or more smart. It's just really about how good you are at this visual spatial tracking. Um, And we find that people who are in uh, occupations, you know, this is all very preliminary data, so this is not stuff that we have to examine this in a more uh, fine-grained way. People who are coming from careers that are related to mathematics or design or architecture seem to do better at these visual spatial tracking tests um, as compared with, with, you know, the average person. Hmm. I mean, my, well, my background's physics, so that sort of uh, pans out. And I know with, um, I had a whole lot of kids over at our school the other day and, and um, they were all throwing tennis balls at me and, you know, none of them got me. Does that, <laughs> does that pan out with that test? So no, we don't know yet if it correlates with athletic ability. I personally, <laughs> uh, that's one of the tests that I do better at. In fact, I think it's the only test I do well at of these. Um, and I cannot catch something that, to save my life. So um, it might be related as in, you know, people who are good at that sort of thing might have good visual spatial tracking, but having the good visual, visual spatial tracking does not mean that you're good at athletics, unfortunately. Mm, mm. Um, I had a, well, two questions. One, are you sure none of the kids got you with a tennis ball, Dr. Shane? But yeah. two, uh, <laughs> the, uh, this is a more naive question about the idea of having your aptitudes and abilities peak at different points in your lifespan. I, that makes sense as, as, as we all go through life, but does that mean that I should give up on my ability to critically pay attention or critically understand or read things by the time I'm 50 and I'm no longer <laughs> able to learn new, take on board new data quickly like I could when I was 18 or it, it depends on your experience and background. It's just, this is, is this more of your intrinsic ability to do those things? So we don't really know why these abilities change. It could be that as you get older, you aren't trying to solve new problems as much and you really focus in on a single type of problem. And so maybe these changes are due to the types of demands of everyday life as opposed to things that are more, I guess, uh, uh, bottom-up, biologically driven. Um, However, I I think it's important to note that the differences we see at different points in age are very small relative to the differences that are in a group at any particular age. So for instance, the differences between people who are 30 years old, the best of the 30-year-olds and the worst of the 30-year-olds is much bigger than the difference between the 70-year-olds and the 20-year-olds on average. So um, what that means is that some people are going to be really, really fast at age 70, much faster than any random 20-year-old. And some people who are age 20 are going to have huge, amazing vocabularies much larger than the average 70-year-old. So it, it doesn't apply well to making decisions as an individual about how you should change what you do at different parts of life. What it's really about is looking at these patterns of aging and patterns of change in the population as a whole. Mm. Okay. Certainly should be useful for excuses with our partners though, Laura. I think you'd have to agree. <laughs> Some excuses. I think the excuse of, of, of not not being able to read uh, emotions, I think, uh, 
We found that that gets better as you get older, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's um, it's fascinating work. Um, just before we go, Laura, what, what's um, what's next? I mean, you've you've sort of un- unleashed in a way this whole citizen science um, area. Of, of taking vast quantities of people. I mean, this must really change the way many of these, you know, psychological tests and so forth are done, and and it completely changes the statistics to a point where this stuff is really believable. I mean, what's what's next in terms of the sorts of testing you're doing? You know, it's a bit like landing on a new planet or something, and you're trying to figure out, like, you don't even know what you're looking for. You're just sort of mm. wandering around going, oh, wow, there's just so much to see. Um, and we've been studying aging. We've been studying things like how people's environments and childhood might impact the way they function as adults. We've been looking at things like differences in personality and cognition, differences in occupations and cognition. And I think we're just beginning to, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg of the sorts of things you can do when you move to these very large samples. And, you know, we're the, this is the first time in history I think that one would be able to collect this kind of sample on a limited budget in a limited period of time. Hmm. And so, you know, I think the next five, 10 years are going to be very exciting for, for understanding what areas of human behavior we haven't really tapped into that we can start, you know, understanding for the first time. Yeah, look, it's fascinating stuff. Laura, thanks so much for talking to us today. And we might follow up with you in the, so the, the you know, next six months or so and just see where this is going because it really does open up some new areas. And I love your description of it as being like on a new planet. I think, um, you know, our minds are still so unknown. There's so much unknown there that um, this sort of massive amounts of data that you're getting in now should really paint a new picture. So thanks so much for talking to us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Laura Jameen is a research fellow in psychiatric genetics at Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts General Hospital and is the founder and director of the Test My Brain website. It's worth having a look at, actually. I I did one of the tests, and, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how well I did. It was all all good. It was all good. Now, I'm joined in the studio now by Dr. David Williams, who is currently the head of the Australian Venom Research Unit at the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics at the University of Melbourne and the Charles Campbell Toxicology Centre at the School of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of Papua New Guinea in Port Moresby. He also manages the Snakebite Clinic in the Emergency Department at the Port Moresby General Hospital. Welcome to the studio, David. Hi, it's good to be here. Now, um, you are heavily involved in snake bites and how to deal with those. Papua New Guinea has one of the highest snake bite rates in the world, but this doesn't really tell us about the, the sort of the sheer numbers in terms of comparison with other things like infectious diseases. How, how do those numbers stack up? Is this, a, is this a big problem? It is a big problem in different parts of the country. There are some remote areas of Papua New Guinea where three times more people die of snake bite than die from malaria, for example. So even though malaria is more likely to make people sick and chronically sick, snake bite is an acute event where the chances of fatality is significantly higher on a case-by-case basis. So so what sort of numbers are we talking about for the country in a given year? Well, in the health system itself, they're probably around about 150 to 200 deaths a year, which is about 200 times more than Australia on average. But we do community surveys where we actually go out and we talk to village elders and we do what they call oral autopsies, um, where we determine, you know, a person has died, they think it was snake bite, we ask the right questions and we make a decision as to whether it really was or wasn't. And based on those from where we've been so far, for every person who dies in the health system, there are probably four or five more who never see the inside of a health centre. So you're talking about at least a 1,000 deaths a year in a country of around about 7 million people. 
Mm. Now, you know, put that in perspective here in Australia, on average it would be between one and three deaths a year out of 21, 22 million. Mm. Um, but, of course, there are other places in the world where it is a bigger problem. If you look at India with its population of uh, 1.2, 1.3 billion, they have around about 50,000 deaths a year from snake bite, And it's globally, if you look at it in terms of the tropical developing world, it's one of the most neglected diseases because it just doesn't hit the radar. Um, mm. Because snake bite isn't infectious... Yep. It doesn't really gain attention in the western side, of, you know, and um, it also affects mainly the rural poor, so people that aren't high on the priority lists for governments anyway, unfortunately. Mm. So in terms of, you know, the social um, deficit, I suppose, you know, these are people that are very well marginalised, even within their own countries, and they're simply ignored. Now, I understand that the main culprit in this uh, particular country is the Papuan Taipan. Tell us a bit about this snake. It, it seems as though it takes up the vast majority of the cases that we're talking well, about. Well, it does. Where, where we work in the southern half of Papua New Guinea, Taipans account for over 90% of all of the serious snake bites that we treat. Mm. And it's the same species of snake that's actually found here in northern Australia. They, they occur from northern New South Wales right across the top end into western Australia. And here, you know, there have probably been 50 deaths from Taipan bites in the last 50 to 60 years. But in PNG, it's vastly different. And it's largely to do with people's behaviours. Mm. Um, you know, farmers in this country wear protective you know, shoes, long trousers, they, they work in machinery. But in Papua New Guinea, you have subsistence farmers who are walking barefoot through long grass, you know, working in their gardens, using their hands rather than tools, and they're very susceptible. Mm. Now, presumably, especially in remote areas, as you mentioned, when there is a snake bite, um, you know, time has got to be a factor here. What, what, is, what is the scenario there? Presumably, these people are a fair distance from any medical care. So what happens? Well, this is the real problem with Taipan bites, because this is a snake that has a... Its, its most lethal component of its venom is a neurotoxin that destroys the nerve endings and... We find that patients who present more than four hours after they were bitten have a very high rate of respiratory failure, even with antivenom. So the antivenoms just simply aren't able to, to deal with the damage that's been done to the nerves, and those people will get worse regardless. So we really need to get people into hospital as quickly as possible and in many parts of the country you don't even get to the referral health centre within four hours mm. so a high proportion of cases by the time they come to us it could be 12 14 even you know even longer before we we actually get to deal with them and then those people are often on the verge of dying when they arrive because they've they've got an obstructed airway and are no longer able to breathe mm. now i'm very curious about the the whole science around the anti-venom itself how does this work i mean everyone will have seen those pictures of someone milking a snake over a, a beaker or a collection receptacle of some type but how does anti-venom actually work in the body okay so what we're doing, antivenom is actually the antibodies produced by a, um, a donor animal. So in the case of snake antivenoms, principally we use horses to raise antibodies. So we take venom from the snakes, and that venom 
is injected in very small amounts into horses which then produce antibodies in their blood and we're able to harvest those antibodies purify them um, they're, they're buffered and you know sometimes preservatives and other chemicals are added to make sure it's a stable solution and that becomes your anti-venom solution so you're really getting the the, the proteins from another animal um, which is one of the, the potential downsides because unfortunately if the production of the product is not very high you can have a, a very high rate of adverse reactions because people react to the the foreign protein mm. and how much would it cost for you know if i get bitten by a, a snake in Papua new guinea and i need need a vial or a, a dose of this what, what would that cost typically so the average cost to the health department in png is around about 1500 to 2000 us dollars depending on exchange rate mm. but that's that's a very high cost in a poor country the the supply of antivenom is significantly more expensive for example than the supply of antiretroviral drugs used for hiv aids patients right. mm. um, the course of those costs about five hundred dollars so our main reason for wanting to produce a new antivenom in Papua New Guinea was mainly because of the cost. The antivenom that they have been using, which is made here in Australia, is an excellent product, but it's just not something that they can afford to buy enough of for every person to get it. Mm. So we set out with a brief of wanting to produce a product that was equally as good in terms of its safety and its efficacy but at a significantly lower cost so that they could afford to buy enough to treat everyone who needs it. Now, I understand when you embarked upon this mission, there are a lot of naysayers, of course. I mean, anti-venom technology around the world is fairly well developed, and, and I assume you need to develop a scenario that, A, is low cost, but also is environmentally more stable so do you need to be able to have it in locations where the same con laboratory sort of containment conditions and, and temperature conditions are not not available is that yeah. true yeah one of the big problems in the rural tropics is the lack of cold chain storage they don't have electricity supplies so they don't have refrigerators and therefore drugs that need to be kept cold are, are very difficult for them to have so we did face, you know, a lot of criticism when we first brought this project up. People said, well, look, it just can't be done. First of all, it's going to cost you millions and millions of dollars to do the R&D, and you're still going to have this problem that, you know, people can't store it. But we shopped around. We went to a number of antivenom manufacturers, and eventually we found a partner in Costa Rica uh, based in a university, so it's a non-profit organisation called the Instituto Clodomiro Picado. They make antivenoms for their own country, but fortunately they also have a lot of surplus production capacity. And they basically said, well, look, you give us the snake venom and we'll do this for free. Hmm. And in terms of um, the actual cost then to the country, I mean, presumably it's non-zero, but, but what, what does it come down to in terms of a single dose uh, of this version? So this, this product will come down to $143 US a vial, so it's less than a tenth of the cost of the current product. And our clinical trials that we're conducting at the moment, we're, we're now in phase two and will be finished at the end of the year it's proven to be equally safe and equally effective so far. Mm. So we're very happy with 
the way things are going. Yeah. And what kind of conditions can you keep this anti-venom in? Is this the sort of thing I could keep on a shelf, or does it still have to be refrigerated? Well, one of the, the things that the Costa Ricans are doing is they're experimenting with different types of buffers for, for anti-venoms, and they've produced some very good experimental results so far that suggest that they could be kept at 25 degrees for up to mm-hmm. six months right. or at 37 degrees for at least 90 days. And in our setting... Anti-venom doesn't stay on the shelf that long. It gets used very quickly. And, you know, we tend to think that even if we're able to provide a product that could potentially, say, survive a refrigerator failure or be kept out of the, out of the fridge for up to a month, that would get used in that period of time and it would benefit people. Mm. Now, now let's talk about the geographical sort of isolation issue because that's part of this whole Mm. problem as well. And you mentioned that in some cases it's, you know, four hours until you get to a medical clinic. Does this new type of antivenom allow you to essentially get that closer to where the the victims are are being bitten? Yes. So our, our aim is that we'd be able to distribute it to a lot of small aid posts and clinics that currently can't keep it because they don't have cold chain Mm -hmm. facilities and that will reduce the period of time between the person being bitten and having access to treatment and if we can do that we can also deal with this problem of this destructive neurotoxin which Mm. after a certain number of hours you know no amount of anti-venom is going to be particularly effective yeah and and in terms of the distribution to an individual uh, anti-venoms are they they like other medications in that you need to know the person's weight their age uh, things of that nature or is it a single dose that everyone gets the same version of we designed this this is a single dose. So in, in some parts of the world, you might have a, a particular antivenom where you may need 30 or 40 vials. Mm-hmm. But we've designed this as one vial being adequate to neutralise twice the average amount of venom that the snake would inject when it, when it bites. Okay. And the aim of that is one patient, one vial, one cost unit. Mm. And it's, it just makes things simple because we see in parts of the world, particularly in Africa, where people do need multiple vials and they can't afford them all, mm. then they start to say, well, okay, we need 10, but we can only afford two. And then what happens is that the treatment doesn't work and the doctors and the patients lose faith in it. And the next thing you know, nobody wants to use it because they think the product is bad when the reality is you just weren't giving them the right dose in the first place. Mm. And, and how far down the sort of line in terms of the medical practitioners can you go? Because I know in Australia, for example, around allergies and anaphylaxis, you know, EpiTent pens are in, you know, uh, a lot of people's handbags. They're, you know, and, and they're, they're, they're sort of cars. They, they keep them and they can distribute them and use them themselves. These are non-medically trained specialists. Does it go that far or are we still talking that the local sort of equivalent of the general practitioner's office? Well, no, in, in public... Papua New Guinea, antivenoms are often routinely administered by nurses or what we call community health workers um, who are the, the very lowest level of health care providers. And in many cases, they're the only people available. You know, mm. there's a real shortage of doctors in rural Papua New Guinea. I think it's about one for every 80-something thousand people. So they have to rely on the, this other tier of, of health workers to administer it. And we've looked at adverse reaction rates to antivenom use in PNG. And with the, the current product, it's around about 10 to 20%, depending on the circumstances. But so far, with the product that we're trialling at the moment, which has a, only a third of the protein level 
of the of the Australian anti-venom. It's proven to be very safe, and the rates less than two percent. Mm. So safety profile is one of the things that was important for us. Yeah. Um, but we don't see anaphylaxis from snake bite very commonly mm. in Papua New Guinea. We do get patients who might get. Uh, a rash, urticaria, or they might um, they might have a lot of itching, but these are things that can be managed fairly mm. simply. Mm. And, and in terms of the um, the way in which you'll be producing this, because as you said, at the moment this is done in, in Costa Rica. Is this something you know our antivenoms are produced here in, in Australia? Is this something that likely will be able to be produced in country as opposed to I guess, that import scenario? I guess that would be our our dream for this product, if you want to call it that. Mm. Um, Papua New Guinea certainly wants to improve its uh, capacity in terms of biotechnology, and they, they now have a science and technology secretariat that's promoting research and biotechnology in the country. And our aim would be in the next five years, if the product succeeds at clinical trials and gets registered, that we would move some of the, the processes, such as the quality control and the dispensing and the, you know, into PNG, but eventually it's quite feasible that it could be produced there by Papua New Guinean scientists doing the work themselves. But it will take time because it needs both personnel and infrastructure and they're, they're two things that still need to be developed. Mm. Now, two very interesting areas I think that still remain. One is we've talked about one snake and the antivenom for that snake, which, as you say, makes up some 90% of the cases in Papua New Guinea. But so there are obviously other snakes um, of concern, but also other regions of the world so how will this translate into those other regions? Because that seems really exciting. Well, this is the thing. I guess the, the work for us has been about um, proof of concept. Mm. So once we've, we've got one antivenom working, if we need to produce other antivenoms for Papua New Guinea, that should be a relatively simple exercise. We keep a, a, a collection of venomous snakes in our lab in Port Moresby that we produce venoms from for both research and antivenom production. So we've got that side of things sorted. But realistically, the whole approach of what we do, because we're not just about antivenoms, you know, we deal with community education, we train doctors and health workers, we manage patients in hospitals, we even run an ambulance retrieval service. We have the only intensive care ambulance in the country that will go out into the bush and pick up the most severely ill patients and bring them back to, to hospital safely. Mm. Um, it's a holistic approach to the problem of dealing with snake bite. You know, we, we treat prevention, we deal with first aid, we deal with management, and with the prov- provision of safe, effective antivenoms. And that model is the sort of model that we think could easily be translated to other developing countries around the world where we can build their own capacity and give them the ability to deal with the problem themselves. And, David, whenever we talk about these sort of new models that seem to fit completely outside of the box of, of the norm of the way these things are done, the, the question comes up of how they're funded. How, how is your program funded? and Is that something that's secure, given, obviously, the, the outcomes of this? It can be quite spectacular. Most of our work so far has been the result of a, an NHMRC project grant that we received in 2011. Um, we've also had some support from the Papua New Guinean government, but we're negotiating with them at the moment for more. But it's it's always difficult to fund these unconventional programs and I guess the biggest risk that we're exposed to at the moment is that going into 2016 
you know, we, we still have questions about funding still to solve. So we're talking to, to corporate organisations in PNG, some of the oil and gas companies. We're talking to private people here and looking at philanthropy as one way to fund it. But we also have ongoing research projects that we have grant applications in for. But, you know, it still is a big question mark and that's that's really the biggest problem that we have in making this sustainable in the longer term. But the benefit is in the fact that you know, we literally save lives every day of the week. Our our current clinic treats nearly 400 snake bite patients a year, and we've reduced the case fatality rate sixfold since we started work there. So our case fatality rate, which used to be between 15 and 25 percent, depending on whether they're adults or children, is now down to two percent. Hmm. And that's the real benefit of what we do. Um, and if we teach enough Papua New Guinean doctors the, the protocols and the techniques that we use, we, we hope that ultimately that will be sustainable and that's the, the best return on the investment that I can see. Absolutely, David. I think it's it's fabulous work you're doing and, and I sure hope that the uh, the type of... Uh, information that gets out to the media and the public in more, more general terms brings this up to, as you say, the sort of the notoriety of, of some infectious diseases where there is so much money being being put in, uh, appropriately so. But um, this is obviously one that has a major effect on these communities as well. So good luck with that. Thank you. No, but it's, it is very true. I mean, if you look at global figures, snake bite kills at least 125,000 people mm. a year. That's about five times more people than die of dengue. Mm. But it receives not even 1% of the funding. Yeah. And the sad thing about it is is that these are all preventable deaths because there are treatments available. We just have to make them accessible. Yeah. And that's, I guess, what we're doing in PNG and what eventually we'd like to do in other countries as well. Thanks so much for talking to us today on Triple R. It's a pleasure. Dr David Williams currently heads the Australian Venom Research at the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics at the University of Melbourne and the Charles Campbell Toxinology Centre at the School of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of Papua New Guinea at Port Moresby. He also manages the Snake Bite Clinic in the Emergency Department at the Port Moresby General Hospital. You're listening to 3 R. This is Einstein Agogo. 3 R. Now, uh, a quick uh, thank you to all of you who have subscribed. Uh, thank you very much for doing that. We really appreciate it here at Triple R. It is the lifeblood of the station, so if you do want to keep Triple uh, R on the radio, you need to do also what uh, some magical people have already done and subscribe to Triple R. You can still do it. Just do it via the web, rrr.org.au, and uh, we will appreciate it for at least 12 months. Uh, well, well, maybe a day less than 12 months until we start asking again next year. But we only ask once a year, so we do very much appreciate the support. And it is basically more than 50% of the money that the station runs on because we don't do what the government says. Simple as that. Now, we're going to give you some science news. Uh, Dr. Ray is almost jumping yeah, out of his seat I, I, here. Well, I, I have a story. I think it fits very well with the, with, the, with the interview we just heard and we just had... And, in fact, with the track, because it's about something venomous, and that was death. Anyway, um, <laughs> did you know, Dr. Shane, that that if I say tree frog, you might think, oh, those cute green tree frogs that, that you see in, in pet stores, or, or you might think of uh, the Brazilian rainforest uh, tree frogs, these brightly colored ones. They're unfortunately sometimes referred to as poison arrow tree frogs, oh, yeah. not because they are on... They, 
shoot arrows, but because they then get killed and you know they are used for arrow. But mm-hmm. basically, you have these tree frogs that are brightly colored, which are toxic, and they're brightly colored as a hint to other animals: "Don't eat me, I'm poisonous." Mm-hmm. But what researchers have just found in a recent study um, was they found two Brazilian frog species that are actually venomous tree frogs. And so venomous means that instead of just being toxic if you're eaten, they're actually using a toxin as a venom to attack things. And uh, they believe this is probably the first evidence of a venomous frog. And so they, they, what it is is they have these sharp spines protruding around their nose and mouths that they actually deliver to predators by headbutting them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, now, what's interesting about these uh, researchers from uh, Utah State University was that they discovered... Uh, that these toxic tree frogs, which they already knew they were toxic, were actually venomous the hard way. Uh, and they found this out by restraining Ooh. them in their hands. So they picked up oh. the frogs, <laughs> and suddenly they noticed that the frogs started headbutting their hands and suddenly had intense pain in their arm for several hours. Wow. So, so Because nobody thinks a frog is venomous in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. not to eat them. Or lick them. Exactly. Yeah. Is Homer Simpson. Anyway, uh, I'm not not licking frogs. Anyway, uh, for those of you out there that like that episode. Yeah. Uh, um, but, 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 so nobody knew a frog could be venomous. And it's quite interesting. It's probably similar toxins in, that we have that we know we shouldn't eat them. But that, that spine evolution mm. for, for predators is pretty fascinating. And, and that's a dedication to science, to find out it's venomous by... Grabbing it and holding it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I guess no one would really question, are you sure it's venomous? (laughs) Just at a conference, are you sure it's venomous? Yeah. Yes, do you know how much my arm hurt? Um, Yeah, what did it feel like in your hand? It felt like my hand was headbutt. (laughs) And uh, now I can't feel my My hand at all. (laughs) Very interesting stuff. Mm. Amazing. Uh, Dr. Catherine, what do you got for us? I've been reading this week about a new condition which I had actually not heard of before. Have you heard of nomophobia? I know what a nomograph is, but that's actually a correlation for temperature and pressure for volatility distribution coefficients between two different liquids for designing distillation columns. And it's called a nomograph. Sorry, I just nodded off. Uh, (laughs) You know... So no to answer your question. (laughs) Well, well, nomophobia is the fear of being without your mobile phone. Holy crap. Uh, Absolutely. That's a serious phobia. Well, well, it is. And in fact, and, and I can understand if you look around, if you go to a restaurant, or you walk down the street, everybody's holding their yeah, phones or looking yeah. at their phones. So it's a, obviously it's a recent issue, um, only first described in 2005, and we're just slowly starting to understand about this phobia. So researchers, and it was published this week in Computers in Human Behaviour, uh, the journal did some research looking firstly at um, the characteristics of nomophobia, and then they went on to develop a questionnaire to actually assess how severe it is, uh, so, which was really interesting. I'm wondering whether it's it's short for no moron, you don't have a phobia. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> You've lost uh, your uh, phone. <laughs> what's the classification for the extent there? Annoying, really annoying, completely lost it, completely lost any perception with reality. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I, I could understand you, it could be a real fear and anxiety, but I'm just wondering on the radio yeah. scale. Yeah. Yeah, and there are lots of different components of it. Some of it is that fear of not having it, but when the researchers actually looked at the properties of this condition, there were sort of four different themes. So one of them was just not being able to communicate to people. Yep. Um, one was losing connectedness. 
um, and obviously with, with you know using the internet and things mm. to the outside. The the third one was not being able to access information. Okay. And the last one was giving up convenience. So there's quite a wide variety of, of different themes there. And and what the researchers did, so firstly they interview people who have this condition or experience this phobia. They then looked at these themes and developed a questionnaire to assess. And I, I had a good time actually going through some of the questions and trying to work out whether I suffer from this condition. <laughs> and do you? Well, I can't quite work it out, actually. Maybe a mild version. Yeah, yeah. quite possibly. Yeah. So some of the, it's a 20-item questionnaire that they've now developed and validated, um, and I suspect they're going to now use this in future research trials. But some of the questions are things like, um, running out of battery, my smartphone would scare me. Oh, wow, yes. I, f- yeah. I feel very nervous because I wouldn't be able to receive a text message or call if I didn't have my smartphone with me. So uh, a variety of different uh, different types of questions. But I think it's um, it's a developing problem, and I think we're going to see more of it. Yeah, that's a big one. I mean, I wonder what the past version of that would be, like um, maybe not enough tapeopia, as in the tape in my answering machine. If I got too many yeah. calls and too yep. many messages, I might run out of tape and miss an important message. Could that yeah. be a phobia? I'm just wondering. Sure. <laughs> I just think, you know, uh, I, see, I have. I have to say, I have. I don't give a shit, Obia. Which is, you know, if you don't, if if you don't get a text back from me within five minutes, that's great. Yeah. Um, suck it up, baby. Just um, be patient. I'll get to you. Because um, I, I just can't handle it. I, I, I like the, the the theme about access information yeah. because I, I think I, I, this is my own hypothesis with no actual data, so I'm comfortable saying it. Um, <laughs> I, I think how we actually remember and retain information now has really changed because mm. I don't need to know that I can look it up. Yeah. Uh, and so you actually invest part of your working knowledge in the device as opposed to retaining it necessarily. And I could see if the device suddenly didn't work, you feel like some of the, the knowledge you need to function isn't there anymore. I guess it depends on what knowledge you're talking about. Because I know my son at the moment is eight years old. He's asking me a lot of detailed questions about stuff. And I, I want to be able to answer without going, oh, hang on, I'll look it up. Like, I, I want to be able to provide answers. Yeah, but I, I don't know my son's school phone number off the top of my head anymore. That's true. It's in my phone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Some knowledge you, you're yeah. happy to park. Other knowledge you, you probably should yeah. have. I'm, I go, I'm going to a trivia night next Saturday. I'm just thinking of boning up on every sort of bit of information I can, you know. Having the astronauts uh, land on the moon, all this sort of stuff. I'm just going to look it all up. Yeah, you know, make sure it's all in my noggin. Because I assume there'll be a phone ban. All these yeah, people, hope with, so. <laughs> people with this 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 condition, they're going to seriously have a problem at the event. They, they will. will absolutely. Folks, we're going to play you a little bit of uh, music, and we'll be back at the moment with some more news before we uh, end the hour. So enjoy this. Three triple R. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Three Triple R. The song you just heard was "But I'll Try" by Ainsley Wills. Now, Dr. Ray, you've been looking into research about what goes on when we're sleeping and dreaming. Yes, yes. Uh, largely because you know, if you fall asleep at your desk, you start to think about these things. No, um, this is a, this is an interesting study out of Aviv University in Israel, where they actually were looking at the uh, parts of your brain that are active when that are associated with vision, and what they noticed was is that the parts of your brain that are attributed to visual awareness can actively be active during different parts of your sleep as if you were awake and seeing images. Wow. And, 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 and so that's kind of wild. That, and they actually found it was brain activity patterns during uh, sleep when you had rapid eye movement were similar to those that occurred during when you were actually viewing an image. So during dreaming, you're actually see, your, your brain thinks it's seeing even though your eyes are closed. 
And, and what's really fascinating, the control of putting people in a dark room while they are awake and they don't see anything because it's a dark room, their activity isn't up. Right. So it's not even about your eyes being open or closed. Right. It's about your brain being active and thinking visually hmm. in, in, in using that area of the brain. And I just found that wild. It, it makes sense because uh. we often come away from dreams with visuals that we remember. You know, we remember things from our dreams in a sort of weird visual way. I mean, if you ask people to to describe intimate details of them, they probably can't, but they can often describe room settings and, you know, various objects and so forth. Well, it also means REM sleep's linked to dreaming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Uh, and, and so remember that, you know, that nice soothing track kind of lead into <laughs> as you're sleeping. Uh, so. uh, yes. So so real, real implications. Oh no, I was thinking about you when I sleep. I could see what you see you even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, we're going to have to leave it there, folks. Uh, the hour has gone quick for us today. I have to say, uh, you have been listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. Thank you, Doctor Ray. Thank you, Doctor Shane. Great to see you, Doctor Catherine. Great to see you too. Thank you very much. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening, folks. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.